0: Let's pray together. God, we do look forward to that day. We thank you for the hope of heaven. We thank you for our dear brother and sister, Tim and Terry, who have lived out grieving as those who have hope. We thank you that we can anchor our hope in your holiness your love, and your grace. And I pray that as we open up your word this morning, that we would see your holiness on display as never before, and that we would cast ourselves into your arms. In your name we pray. Amen. I'd like you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. If you're in first through third grade, you can head out to our children's church. At this time, Isaiah chapter 6. We're currently looking at the attributes of God and taking a message to look at how different attributes of God. Help us understand the one God who is, that God is not a division of his attributes, but God is his attributes, that God is one, and the best way that he, can, that, that he has revealed himself to us in Scripture, and the best way that we can understand him and talk about his character, is to talk about attributes that make up his essence, that make up his nature. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have something unfolded for us, in the pages of Scripture called the Holiness of God. It's not the only time that the Holiness of God is referenced. It's not the first time in the Scripture that the Holiness of God is referenced, but I believe it gives us a picture of this concept unlike any other passage. Before I begin the message, I'd like to let you know that I'm actually going to be splitting this message into two different messages for this week and next week. At the recommendation of some in the church, you'll see on your worship guide at the, at the bottom, I've notated the passage I'll be preaching on next week and what the next Sunday evening will be as well. And um, and you'll see that next Sunday evening was supposed to be on God's sovereignty. That's not a mistake. That's just that as I got into writing this message, uh, Friday morning, Friday afternoon, Saturday morning, and, and, and everything that this passage entails after researching And studying this week, I just think there's too much here to deal with in one setting. And so we'll carry this concept over into next week as well. We'll still be in Isaiah 6 next Sunday morning, and then following the holiness of God, we'll look at the sovereignty of God the following week. Some of you say, Pastor Joe, it doesn't matter, but there are others of you who if something is not done exactly according to the worship guide... We have a little bit of an issue. So for those of you who are type A, just wanted to make sure that that you knew that. I know, sometimes I know what's going on. Not all the time. But in this case, there is methods to our madness. Let's read Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to read the entirety of the chapter. And then I'll begin my sermon. In the year that King Uzziah died, I... "...saw the Lord, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth." Is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold, threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I love the King James wording there. If you have that in front of you, it says, I am undone. I'm coming unraveled at the seams. I'm lost. a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts then one of the seraphim flew to me and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for And I heard the voice of the Lord, saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he, the Lord, said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Lord, as we look into your word, would you open our eyes? Would you show us your glory? Amen. What is the holiness of God? Holiness. There are whole groups of people that would categorize themselves as holiness churches. There are people who would say, I'm doing this because God commands me to be holy. Be holy, for I am holy. There are those who would classify holiness in their own distinction. Of saying, in order for you to be holy, you have to be holy like I am holy. Not necessarily like God is holy, but maybe my interpretation of God as holy. And yet, some others who would say, yes, God is holy, but He's also loving, so He'll look past your sins, as long as they're little. What is holiness? The holiness of God can be explained in a twofold way. Pastor Ben mentioned this at the beginning of the service, but Most think of the holiness of God just as his purity from sin, and that is true. It is a true concept that God's holiness means God's purity. That as we look at the snow from last night, that's untainted by by melting or by dirt. You see a white landscape, and so you see something that reminds you of purity, but God's holiness goes far beyond just the purity according to your own imagination because God is far more pure than anything you can imagine. I mean, think of the most pure thing that you can ever imagine in your mind, whether it's a flawless diamond or a, or a white, pure white sheet of paper or a white snowy landscape. And I want you to realize that that doesn't even touch how pure and holy God is. That He is beyond, so far beyond even the highest of our imaginations of what the word pure would mean. And so when we think of God's holiness, we can't just think of purity. We must also think of God's separateness because of His purity. Meaning that He is more set apart than anything else. And he is set apart from everything else. That God is set apart far beyond us. That our sin makes us not only unapproachable to God, but God must hold us at a distance from him. That everything that God has created is different and separate and below him. A.W. Pink would say this way in his book, The Attributes of God, which I highly recommend. He says, the holiness of God is the very excellency of the divine nature. Something that is excellent, that is set apart, that is in its core different. Those of us who would seek to be holy would not just seek to be different, but different in a sense that is set apart to God. Often when we think of set apart, we think set apart from something. One of my kids' favorite snacks are Cheetos. I don't know if you like Cheetos or not. And... And when they open the bag of Cheetos, the first thing that, that often they will do if they're allowed to pour it out on a plate, sometimes they have to eat out of the bag because it's so messy, but if we're feeling especially gracious during this meal, we say, sure, <clears throat> you know, and they can pour them out on a plate, and what's the first thing that they look for? Is They look for that, the biggest, gnarliest Cheeto, right, because that's the prized possession. And of course, they set that aside, and they save it for the end, because that, that's the special one. We'll, we'll set that aside. And some people would think of holiness like that. I don't mean to equate holiness with Cheetos, right? But, but some would think of it like that. Like holiness is looking at things around you and just being different, you know? And maybe your difference isn't that you're the biggest, gnarliest person around, right? But that, that somehow that you would do something in your life just for the purpose of being different, And you would say, because I am different, because I have somehow set myself aside as different and maybe thought of as better by everyone else in my sense of difference, that I'm going to equate that with holiness. But friends, that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is not just set apart from, it's set apart to something. It's that everything that was holy, that, that was set apart as holy for God that was in the tabernacle or in the temple, these vessels that were used for worship weren't just holy because they were different than any other vessel because there were, I'm sure there were vessels in the king's palaces that were more ornate or that were grander than the, the pieces that were in the temple or that were in the tabernacle. But what made them holy is that they were set apart by the command of God, following the direction of God, they were set apart to him. And so we see that holiness is not just difference. Holiness in its core is being set apart to sacredness. That holiness is being set apart to God. That God defines what is holy. And therefore, as we will see at the end of of the sermon, hopefully if we get that far in next week, that we are to be set apart to God. That it is our separateness to God that makes us holy, not just our difference from those that are around us. And God, in this category is so far beyond us that I, I would say it this way. My definition of holiness is that holiness is God's distinct otherness. That's probably not a very good, very good definition there. But it's God's distinct otherness. He's different in every way. That's what holiness means. Holiness is the divide that separates God from his creation. And if there's one attribute that we need to reclaim in the church today, it's the holiness of God. God is not the big man upstairs. God is not the Santa Claus in the sky, nor is God some sort of divine vending machine for you to go and put a prayer in so you can get out a blessing at any time that you see. We worship the Lord of hosts. Holy is his name. Once again, A.W. Pink would say it this way. The God, in quotation marks, which the vast majority of professing Christians love, is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly, but leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. But the Word of God says, thou hates all workers of iniquity. Psalm 5.5. And again, God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7.11. That in our minds, friends, we need, in our hearts, we need to reclaim the awesome holiness of God. In fact, as we look at the attributes of God, some have explained holiness as the primary attribute of God, meaning God is more holy than any of his other attributes, but embracing the doctrine of the simplicity of God, as we've talked about the last two weeks, we understand that God can't have a primary attribute because he'd be lopsided, that instead we would view the holiness of God as his paramount attribute, meaning that all the other attributes of God in his nature are characterized by his holiness. You could see it, I call it God's umbrella attribute. That underneath the umbrella of all of God's nature and His attributes, they can all be characterized as holy. The angels don't sing back and forth, love, 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 God is love. Mercy, 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 God is mercy. Wrath, 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 God is wrath. They sing holy, holy, holy. Holy, because this is the paramount title that conditions all of his attributes. Stephen Charnock would say it this way, As sincerity is the luster of every grace in a Christian, so is purity the splendor or holiness the splendor of every attribute of the Godhead. His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. His power, a holy power. His truth, a holy truth. Because His name is holy. He defines what those mean. He, in His essence, is holy. So it's imperative for us and our understanding of who God is to understand this concept of holiness. Understanding the attribute of holiness to the best of our ability through the pages of Scripture gives us a proper perspective of God, it gives us a proper perspective of ourselves, and it gives us a proper perspective of our mission here on this earth. And that's really how this passage is broken down. If you want to look, from, look with me down at chapter 6, you see that Isaiah maybe for the first time in his life comes face to face with the awesome holiness of God. And when I say awesome, I don't mean that as a throwaway word. I mean that as a way that strikes fear and awe into your heart. As he sees God for who He is, In verses 1 through 4. And that recognition of who God is leads him to see himself for who he really is. In verses 5 through 7. And then only with that foundation, the right view of God and the right view of self, can Isaiah correctly accomplish the mission that God has laid out for him and correctly understand what his responsibility is. It's in that order, and those are the three parts that I'd like to lead you through over the past two weeks. So let's begin with Isaiah's vision of God's holiness. Isaiah's vision of God's holiness in verse 1. One of the reasons why I think this is too much to handle in one message is because in order to really put ourselves right, in the proverbial sandals of Isaiah there receiving this vision, we have to understand how God had used in his, in his providence and in his sovereignty, how God had used the events of what's happening in the nation of Israel to prepare Isaiah for this moment. And Isaiah gives you that hint And if you know your Old Testament well, you'll pick up on it. And if you were a Jew, you would know exactly what he was referencing in this one little phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died. One day, you will be sitting with your grandkids or your great-grandkids and you will tell them the story of 2020. Or you will say... As I was, I was sitting in the, on the couch in the basement when I saw the second tower fall. And when I say that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And you picture in your mind exactly where you were when you heard. And for some of the young ones who were not alive at that time, they look at you and they say, what is he talking about? And he says, oh, he's referencing 9-11. Let me tell you what that was like. In that moment, when he says in the year that King Uzziah died, he's making a statement for those who would know what he's talking about. I don't want to assume that you know what he's referencing, and so I would like, if you have your Bible, I'd like you to turn back to 2 Chronicles chapter 26, as we look into how God uses this event to prepare Isaiah to receive a vision of God's holiness. Second Chronicles chapter 26. Keep your finger in Isaiah 6 because we'll come back to that. If you don't have your Bible with you, just listen carefully. Second Chronicles chapter 26. And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. What did Uzziah do? He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. Look at verse 4. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Uzziah was a great king for Israel. He reclaimed the holy nature of who God was. He brought a sense of morality to the nation. Verse 6. He went out and made war against the Philistines, just as God commanded and broke through the wall of Gath, and the wall of Jabneth, and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the territory of Ashdod, and elsewhere among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines, and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal, and against the Munites, the Ammonites, paid tribute to Uzziah. And his fame spread even over the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. This was a time of military victory for God's people. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the angle and fortified them. And he built towers in the wilderness and cut out many cisterns, for he had large herds both in Shephelah and in the plain. He had farmers and vine dressers in the hills and in fertile lands, for he loved the soil. It's a time of economic prosperity. Jerusalem is expanding, it's being blessed, God's people are ruling and reigning in the lands. They're accomplishing God's mission as He told them. Uzziah was leading according to the Lord. And you can imagine the the rest of Zechariah and Isaiah that they would have as the prophet of God would come in. And the king would say, tell me what God wants us to do. Please be one of my counselors. Verse 11, Moreover, Uzziah had an army of soldiers fit for war. In divisions, according to the numbers and the muster made by G.L. the secretary, Messiah the officer under the direction of Henaniah, one of the king's commanders, the whole number of the heads of the fathers' houses of mighty men of valor was twenty-six hundred. Under their command was an army of three hundred and seven thousand five hundred, who could make war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy, to get rid of the idol worshippers in the country as God had commanded. And Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, coats of mail, bows, and stones for slinging. In Jerusalem he made machines, invented by skillful men, to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. And his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. And for some of you who've never read your Bible, you're like, the Old Testament's pretty cool. Like, yeah. I mean, Uzziah was the man. I mean, he fortified everything. He invented machines, setting up defenses for God's people, military conquest. but not only that, morality and holiness reigned in the land. If you were on God's side during that time, you got really excited when Uzziah came to town. Uzziah was a great king. Verse 16, but... But when he was strong, what are the next three words? He grew proud. To his destruction. Because being a king wasn't enough. Uzziah wanted more. He entered into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That was not his responsibility. That was the Levitical priest's responsibility. But God, I'm doing so great and everything else, I might as well step outside my boundaries. I'm sure it'll be fine. But Hazariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood King Uzziah And said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord. And at this point, a godly man, when confronted by other godly men about how he had stepped out of line, should have, as David did with Abigail, should have responded in humility, but pride had crept into Uzziah's heart. And Uzziah was angry, because proud people are angry people. Friend, if you have a problem with anger, you've got a problem with pride. Proud people are angry people, and so Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censure in his hand to burn incense, and when he became angry with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly and he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper till the day of his death. And being a leper lived in a separate house, for he was excluded from the house of the Lord. And wanting more than he had, Uzziah lost everything. Coveting will do that to you. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. His son reigned in his stead. Uzziah reigned from a distance. We see that Jotham, if we were to look into Israel's history, his son reigned according to the law of God. It would seem as though Uzziah learned his lesson, humbled himself, and promoted holiness and the commands, law of God, and the word of God for the rest of his reign. Look at verse 22. Now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last, Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos wrote, verse 23 of Second Chronicles 26 and verse 1 of Isaiah 6 coincide, and Uzziah slept with his fathers in the year the king Uzziah died, and verse 23 of 2 Chronicles 6, and Uzziah slept with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the burial field that belonged to the king's. For they said, He is a leper. And Jotham, his son, reigned in his place. Uzziah, as a king, restored the glory of God's people and was used to establish a culture among Israel of holiness and righteousness. God chose to use him in that way. However, like many who God chooses to use for great things, Uzziah became proud and began to think that all the righteousness and all the holiness and all the good things that were happening and that were being accomplished by the children of Israel were a result of his own strength and his own military, not as a result of God's power. Later, Solomon would write, "...the horse is prepared for the day of battle." but victory is of the Lord. And Uzziah forgot that last sentence. You know, God had established laws for the kings of Israel so this would not happen. God had established laws for the kings so they would be constantly reminded of who the true king was. That they would be reminded of Who has the power in Israel? And so in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 through 20, the law of God says the following And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, the king shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, listen to this, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. You say, what does that mean? It means that when a new king came in, the law of God required that king to write the entire book of Deuteronomy by hand. And it had to be checked by the priests so he couldn't skip a couple chapters. Can you imagine if you wrote out the entire book of the Bible by hand? I make it a habit when I preach through a passage to follow this pattern and to write out the entire passage by hand. And do you know how much better I know that passage just by doing that one thing? If you're really godly, you'll use a fountain pen and really nice paper, but we won't go there. But to take a pen and paper and to write out the passage of Scripture by hand, slowly. And then to take that copy of Scripture and keep it with you. It wasn't because there weren't other copies of the Bible around. It was because the king needed that. And Uzziah, as he continued in his reign, he forgot this. And so God had to remind him of his, his mortality, of his human nature. And so by striking Uzziah with leprosy, God was saying, Remember, I am God and you are not. And we would see evidence that Uzziah learned his lesson and so continue to reign through his son, and holiness and righteousness. And as Uzziah's body begins to decay through leprosy, he finishes his reign of 52 years of holiness and righteousness for the kingdom of Israel. And then he dies. And what's the first question when a leader vacates his position? I wonder who we're going to get next. Scholars disagree whether chapter 6 was written following the death of Uzziah. The passage doesn't say that. It says in the year that King Uzziah died. Most would agree that this vision of God from Isaiah happened following the death of Uzziah. But even if it didn't, even if it happened in that last year, friends, it would be obvious that his life was short. I mean, we face this on a small scale every four years, right? It's like we forget that four years ago this happened and people panic every four years only to realize that our answer doesn't lie in Washington. And yes, we need to live out biblical morals and fulfill our responsibility as citizens of this earth by taking the responsibility to promote morality and justice in any way that we can, including choosing to side with those who would do the same to the best of our ability, with wisdom and discernment from Scripture. Yes, we need to do that. But we also need to recognize we don't need to panic every four years. Because it happens every four years, right? And if you can imagine 52 years of a godly reign, 52 years of holiness and righteousness being promoted. Of justice being guarded. Of God's word being lifted high. And then he's gone. And Isaiah says, what happens next? Uzziah's, or Isaiah's, Recognition of God's holiness and God's revelation of himself in this specific way is the answer to that situation. And without that, you miss the motivation for why God is revealing himself in this way to Isaiah at this time. In the year that King Uzziah died. Let's look at God's position of holiness in verse 1, understanding the historical context, recognizing that it's in times of turmoil and fear that you need God's holiness most. We see God's position. If you underline and highlight in your Bible, the next phrase needs to be underlined or highlighted at least once. I saw the Lord. In the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord with my eyes sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Although it's not abundantly clear where Isaiah was when he received this vision from God I think it's appropriate to assume that he's in the temple complex in some way more than likely he's in the temple at Jerusalem worshiping God maybe even seeking wisdom from God God what next where do we go what do we do our king's about to die or our king has just died where do we go from here And God shows up in an incredible way. I'd like you to notice a very specific way that your Bible is printed, if you would. If you have your Bible, I want you to look down at verse 1. And then I want you to also reference verse 3. In verse 1, you'll see very specifically that Isaiah says, I saw the Lord, capital L, little O, little R, little D. And then in verse 3, you see the seraphim as they're singing back and forth, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And if you have a translation in front of you, more than likely, most, if not all translations, make a very distinct um, difference in that Lord to be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the same word in our English language, Lord and Lord, but the, the translators are drawing your attention to two different Hebrew words. One is the proper name for God, Yahweh. That God is the great I am. I am who I am. When Moses says, who should I tell that God sent me? Jesus, or God says, tell him Yahweh sent you. The eternal one, the one without beginning, the one without end, the one who is self-existent, the uncaused cause. It's God. His proper name is Yahweh or Jehovah. That is represented by capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Every time you see that, we saw it in our scripture reading, you see it here in verse 3. It's God's proper name. God only has one name, but he has many titles. We have a children's book called The Names of God. Technically, God only has one name, but He has many titles. And one of His titles is given in verse 1 when Isaiah says, I saw Adonai. I saw the Lord. I saw my Master. I saw my King. The one who I am choosing to align under. This is very specifically used by Isaiah to reference God's position as King and Master and Lord, and my position or His position, you would say in that context, His position as Creator. I mean, as create creature. The creature-creator distinction as created, as servant, as bond slave. He's making the distinction that not only is he Yahweh, not only is this his proper name as the seraphim reference him as, but he is my master in every way. I saw the Lord. And Isaiah is receiving this direct revelation from God. He's not eating psychedelic mushrooms. He's not on some sort of drugs and seeing something that doesn't exist. Isaiah has had the literal curtain of heaven peeled back so he can glimpse into the throne room of heaven and see the throne on which God sits. It's the same thing that happens in Mark chapter 1 when Mark records that the heavens were ripped open. At the baptism of Christ. You are my beloved son and you I am well pleased with the Holy Spirit descending on the Son as a dove. And the Father speaking his pleasing love towards the Son. It is the same way that it happens in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen is stoned. When he preaches to the Pharisees, they reject the truth. They start casting stones at Stephen and Stephen looks into heaven and he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the throne of god and rather than recognizing stephen as a mouthpiece for god they kill him it's the same thing that happens in revelation chapter 4 when god carries john away while he's on the island of, the, the isle of patmos the island of patmos there and he peels back the curtain and john says i saw a throne it's God peeling back the curtain to show you reality. To show you what's happening right now. And if you're thinking, and you've been here the last couple weeks, there should be a question in your mind, actually a question that was asked in our Bible Institute class. Pastor Joe, when you preached to Exodus 33 two weeks ago, you referenced that God told Moses that no one can see me and live. How is this different? And I'm so glad you asked. That's a really good question. Because Moses says in Exodus chapter 33, and God tells Moses that nobody can see the essence, the holiness Nobody can see the character of the triune God and remain alive. God is a spirit and His absolute glory is incomprehensible. Our God is a consuming fire that when His glory shines in all of His essence, it consumes all who are there, who are sinful. But with that in mind, there are also specific times that God has allowed certain people to get a partial glimpse into heaven to see certain manifestations of his glory, to see certain aspects of his essence. You can think of it as having a vision of a portion of the glory of God to help Isaiah understand the kingship and the reign of God as sovereign in this world. Isaiah was not given access to the complete essence of God in his vision, or he would have been consumed instantly. Rather, only a partial glimpse into the throne room of heaven was granted to Isaiah. We can recognize this as well, because for Isaiah, there's no description of what God looked like, just that he was a king. Gary Smith says it this way in his commentary, this was a limited manifestation that was adapted to finite mental comprehension and to human observation. That just means that it was a portion of the essence of God. That God chose to reveal to Isaiah in this way. And so Isaiah, in the midst of his consternation of what's going to happen Because Uzziah is gone. Look at verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Because in this time when this earthly king had just died and the nation of Israel was in cultural and political upheaval, God reveals Himself to Isaiah in this way to remind him, where the real throne actually was. While all earthly kings will come and go, there is one holy king who sits on the throne in heaven who will never be usurped, he will never be replaced, and his rule and reign is over all at all times without exception. That although earthly leaders come and go, there's one leader who will never change and will never leave, who never sleeps, and always rules with perfect justice. And his name is God Almighty. His name's Yahweh. And Isaiah sees the throne even though his earthly throne was vacant. And this throne is characterized by being high and lifted up. And this concept of being high and lifted up is not just communicated in a spatial sense, like Isaiah had to strain in order to see it, or even that, this, that the throne is set in the highest place that he could ever imagine spatially, because later on we'll see that these seraphim creatures are actually above the throne. So it's not in a spatial sense at which the throne is high, although no doubt it was above Isaiah But Isaiah is communicating to us that God in his absolute holiness is distinct from everything that he has created. That he is high above man. That he is high above even the highest thing you can imagine in a sense of holiness. That he is separate. That he has a distinct otherness about him. That this throne was above and beyond anything that he could have ever imagined. We saw this reflected in our scripture reading this morning from Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned above the cherubim, meaning in holy position. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. And so what is the response? Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So, God has a distinct otherness known as his holiness that makes him separate and far above and beyond anything you could ever imagine. And this is further explained in the next phrase the train of his robe filled the temple. This train is referring to the lower hem of the garment, the robe, the priest, the uh, kingly garment here worn by God. This hem traditionally was richly decorated. It had a distinctive border that would identify his rank and position as king. The priests had the same sorts, the high priest had the same sort of, of hem or, or border around the garment, if you want to call it that. Richly colored. This hem may also would have indicated the, the status of the king of who he had conquered that you could walk into the throne room of a king and the garment that the king wore at the bottom of the hem that, that was at the bottom of the throne, you would see how powerful he was and who he had conquered. And so here, Isaiah says, the train of his robe filled the entire temple. In 1947, Queen Elizabeth was set to be married Shortly following World War II, the British nobility wanted to do something to communicate to the people that the world was, was being righted, that the world, everything was going to be okay, that even though many buildings were destroyed, many, many people had lost loved ones, and the world had been in chaos during World War II, the crown wanted to... Use the wedding of Queen Elizabeth to show that everything Everything was on its way back to normal. So how did they do this? They decided to do this by communicating with the train of her wedding gown. Because you, know, you and I well know that when you go to a, a wedding, often the bride will have a long train that's meant to showcase the separateness of this day. The beauty of a bride adorned for her husband to be unified in marriage. And so 350 people took seven weeks to make Queen Elizabeth II's train by hand. It was made of silk and 12 karat gold thread. It was 13 feet long. And when the when the lights hit it, it would radiate. And she was communicating with the train of her wedding gown that although everything was in disruption before, everything is going to be okay because the crown is still intact. And friends, if that communicated a stabilizing influence to England, how much more would the train of God's robe filling the temple in his holiness and in his grandeur, how much more would that have brought peace to Isaiah's mind? No doubt Isaiah had often entered into the throne room in, in Jerusalem and seen the train of the throne of the king, but nothing would compare to the throne of and the train of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Because this whole picture is communicating that everything is going to be okay because we serve a holy God. That nothing on earth can affect His rule and His reign. We see the response of heaven beginning in verse 2 to God's holiness. Isaiah sees that above him in verse 2, that's the king. Adonai, the Lord, his master, above him stood the seraphim. Each of these with six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two... He flew. The seraphim, we don't know much about them. They're fiery beings, terrifying, fiery beings surrounding the throne of God. Their entire existence to proclaim the holiness of God and to serve God through the holiness of God. To draw attention to the absolute separateness of God their location above the throne, recognizing that they're always available to serve this holy God with their six wings, two covering their faces, that even these fiery, angelic beings were created beings, that even these messengers, as powerful as they were, that makes every human look like a peon, right? That no doubt with one of their words could consume a whole army. These fiery beings could not even look at the fiery, absolute essence of an all-consuming God. And so with two wings, God created them to cover their face from the holiness and the essence of God. With two wings, they used to cover their feet, much like Moses at the burning bush when God tells him, you are now standing on what? Holy ground, because everywhere that God is, God consecrates as absolutely holy. And so even standing above the throne. They must cover their feet because they're before a holy God. And with two wings, they used these wings to effectively serve God in any way that He wants because God is the absolute sovereign worthy of total and complete devotion. And so these fiery, majestic, terrifying beings served And were infinitesimal in comparison to this holy, consuming God that they served. Not even able to see Him. And so they declare His nature as one calls to the other in verse 3 and says, Holy, holy, holy. They didn't say it once. The way this verse is worded is as though they were calling back and forth to each other in a constant chorus. That there is a song pervading heaven as these majestic, fiery beings are announcing the, uh, the paramount character of God, the nature of God that Qualifies all of his attributes that this God is above and beyond and far more holy than anything you could ever imagine. That he is holy, 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 holy. A lot of people think there were three seraphim because there are three holies. But friends, there's, an, there's a whole host of seraphim standing before the throne of God. Calling back and forth That God is holy and he is the Yahweh of hosts. He is the Lord of the armies of heaven. That if just being a holy God that can consume everything with a breath isn't enough, he has the host and the armies of heaven behind him. Isaiah, why are you worried? God's got this. Everything's going to be okay. The whole earth is full of his glory. Really, with this, there are two options. I like both of them, so you can choose whichever one. Maybe he's talking about both. It's, it's either saying the full or the whole earth is currently full of his glory, or the whole earth will be one day full of his glory, meaning that the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven will one day come and those army, that army in heaven will follow the return of the Lord as he conquers sin for all of eternity and sets up his rule and reign here on this earth. Both are true. The heavens declare the glory of God and one day God will return with the hosts of heaven to conquer and establish his holiness forever in the new heavens and the new earth where he will reign with his people for all of eternity. And so they're announcing, holy is the Yahweh of the hosts and the armies of heaven. Because there sits a king on his throne and he can never be usurped. He can never die. And it's this vision that Isaiah responds to. I mean, it's not enough just to say, oh yeah, Isaiah saw heaven and there was a throne and there were angels who were saying, holy, holy, holy. You have to understand what's happening in his heart and in his mind as he sees God in this way. And I hate to pull out of the passage here, but we'll continue this passage next week. But before we do, I'd just like to offer a couple of applications. Applications. Number one, you need a higher view of God than you currently have. Wherever you stand on the holiness of God, God needs to be bigger in your life than he is. Because no matter how holy you think God is, if God were to tear open the heavens and you were to see, you would be brought to your knees and say, I had no idea. So friend, you need a bigger God. Isaiah needed a bigger God. Number two, it's the holiness of God that keeps us grounded during times of turmoil. We need to remember that there is only one who sits on heaven's throne, and his name is Yahweh, and he is the Lord of hosts. He is your Adonai, your Lord. So number three, no matter what is happening in your life, be comforted. That it's God who sits on the throne in heaven, and your responsibility is to align under Him as your master, as your king. And just like Isaiah says, He's Yahweh. He's His is His name. He's eternal. That's His right. That's a fact. But not only is that a fact; that is my fact. That He is my my Lord. That I am aligning under Him as my king my rescuer, my savior. You say, Pastor Joe, how is it that none can see God or be consumed and yet we will be one day be in heaven? Because, friend, God wants you to be holy just like he is holy. And the way that happens is for you to come to him in faith, to forget your works, to realize there's nothing you can do to earn favor with this mighty God that he sent his son Pay the payment for your sins on the cross that when you come to him in faith and embrace Jesus as your king, as your Adonai, as your Lord, that you're given access into the very throne room of heaven. I want to end by reading the first three verses of Psalm 99 once again. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble, he sits enthr- enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He has exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Oh God, as we continue to look into your nature, your character, through understanding your attributes, Would it all be governed governed by this concept of holiness? Would we never put you in a box? Would we constantly strive to have a bigger God to, to read your scripture and let your word declare your truth to us and that we would believe it? Would we respond to this holy God and worship falling down on our knees and saying as Isaiah, woe is me, for I am unraveled. I am lost. And may we find comfort in the King of Heaven. Friend, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, would you respond and reflect on the truth that you've heard this morning through the pages of Scripture. Would you do business with God in the quietness of this moment?